So two words which we've used a few times in our confession of faith as of late are the words communion and the word fellowship. Taking these terms as being practically synonymous and then last week seeing how the word fellowship or koinonia is used in the Bible, we come to see that those words which are very often tossed around loosely in Christian circles, fellowship, communion, they actually mean and have meant to Christians far more than just being in the same room together. Uh, they are describing something a lot deeper than really what the majority of Christians actually experience when they're around other Christians. Uh, for those of you who have, have been in or around or a part of or had visited in other churches, you realize that, that what is very often lacking is true Christian fellowship and communion. The term koinonia, often translated as communion or fellowship, implies an agreed-upon commitment to engage in a reciprocal, that's a back-and-forth sharing of yourself with others in light of a deep and abiding spiritual bond. Where there is true communion, true fellowship or koinonia, all of the parties involved aim to give themselves to the others and all of the parties aim to receive from the others. We, there's this agreement, this sort of unspoken, and yet here it is, we're speaking it, but this understanding that we're, we're coming here not just to say, hey, how you doing? How was your week? We're coming here to grow together. And this communion is the fruit of our shared union with Jesus Christ. We're joined to Him by His Spirit. We receive from Him grace upon grace by His Spirit. And what happens is as we receive His grace, each of us then becomes a vehicle of His grace to the others. Now this doesn't imply that we're somehow seeking something of grace outside of Christ. Just like we said this morning with Christian fellowship and what happens in, in the congregation, we don't come here and expect anything from the people as people. What we look at the people and we look beyond them to the God of grace and the Christ and the Spirit of Christ that dwells in them. So we're not looking for anything outside of Christ. We're not denying the reality that each of us has personal dealing with Christ. We're not denying that. What we're saying is we recognize from the Scriptures that Christ deals with each of us individually through other Christians. That's not the only way that He deals with us, but that is one of the ways that Christ Himself deals with His people through His people, through other Christians. And I'll read from John 17. This is the prayer of Christ to His Father, verses 20 to 23, and just notice the language. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. That is, through the word of the apostles. That means He's talking about us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent Me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We see here Christ is praying that all of the saints would be one, that they would be united and together. And the way that He, he, he describes it is, is just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, the language is, is metaphorical or, or analogical. It's not saying, like we said last week, we're, we're not saying that we're somehow absorbed into the Godhead where we lose our identity. Then he says that they, that would be the saints, may be in us, Father and Son. The saints are in the Father and the Son. The saints are one as the Father and the Son are one. Christ being in the saints. The Father being in Christ. That leading to the saints being one. I think all of this is pointing to and is ultimately fulfilled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there's this unity that we have because of our unity with Christ. Christ will say in the judgment, Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. To minister to the saints is to minister to Christ. Matthew 18, 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So to receive the saints is to receive Christ. As he says in Matthew 10, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That would be the Father. To the persecuted, or to persecute the saints is to persecute Christ, as Saul says, or as Christ said to Saul in Acts 9, verse 4, why are you persecuting me? See, there's this bond that we share with Christ that then overflows to a bond that we share with one another. So we don't look at our time with other Christians like you might look at your time with co-workers in the break room. You walk into the break room and you say to yourself, Ah, here you are those people that I see regularly because of a shared obligation. That's not how we treat the church. We come into the church and we say, here, amongst these people, Christ ministers to me and I to Him through His mystical body. So moving forward this week, we see the practical implications of this in our lives. In the second paragraph of chapter 27, we have three ways that Christians enjoy fellowship together. We have three areas of life where we fellowship. And then we have one very important clarification upon the whole. I've entitled this paragraph or this lecture, Communion, Not Communism. <clears throat> Communion, Not Communism. So the first thing we see, three ways that Christians have fellowship. Now we're reading from the Confession. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. So before we get to the first of these three ways of fellowship, first we see the duty of fellowship. Saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion. The subjects, saints by profession, people who claim to be Christians, those who profess to be regenerate followers of the Lord Jesus. Then we see the language of constraint. These people are bound to 
maintain. The idea implies a constraining duty not only to act from time to time or maybe one time and never again, but to maintain or to keep this up as an ongoing habit. As we've said many times recently, being a Christian produces obedience to God's commands. Professing to be a saint, you say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, that doesn't alleviate you from the commandments of God. That doesn't release you from any obligation to obey God's commandments. That actually increases the obligation to obey God's commandments. You say you are a follower of Christ, then you ought to live in the same way in which He lived. And this is one of those obligations, this fellowship and communion. I would say this falls under the second table of the law or the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Then we have the thing obliged, holy fellowship and communion. Now that term holy points us back to what we studied last week. This fellowship, this communion is, is a holy communion. It's different than anything that anybody else in the world has. We have something unlike anything they have. It's, it's not like tailgating. It's not like going, going to a ball game. It's not like going to a, a, the, the moose lodge or, or whatever people do when they get together. We, we have more than that. It's a holy communion. Now, the first way that we share this fellowship is in worship. Saints by profession are bound to maintain and holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. So as we come together for worship, we are carrying out a commitment that we have to one another in worship. As we come to worship, we see one another. That encourages all of us to see all the others. Last week we had several families out and we come in and we, we feel it. It's, it's, it's a little empty in here. It doesn't feel like it, it normally does. And then when everybody comes together, we say, wow, it's full. We put extra pews in here just because we wanted to use them somewhere and there's somebody sitting in all of them. It, it's encouraging. When we see the saints come together, it stirs our hearts. When we hear one another sing, what, what's happening? I'm hearing my brothers and sisters teach and admonish me in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're teaching me. As we hear the, the amen, or as we say, the amen of one another in, in, uh, in a song or in preaching and teaching or in somebody's prayer, that, that is an affirmation of a truth. That's like saying, yes, that is what we all believe. And that is an encouragement. That is a reminder that that... What we just heard, whatever the statement was, whatever we just sang, whatever was just prayed, yes, we do all affirm that. We agree that that's what we believe here. And that is an encouragement to our faith. It confirms the faith. As we come to the Lord's table, what do we often call it? Communion. That's from 1 Corinthians 10. Is it not a participation, a koinonia in the body and blood of Christ? It's a communion with Christ and we come together and we do it as a church. It's not just me by myself communing with Christ. It's us as a body coming to participate in the body and blood of Christ. We come to Christ as a collective body. And, and it, it is as, as if all of us are collectively as we... Maybe you, you hear slurping and, and jaws popping and chewing. And we're, we're all coming to the bread and the wine together. And we're all in, in the same moment fixing our, our, our minds upon the, the benefits of, of Christ's work, we're reminding one another of the promises of the new covenant, what Christ has sealed in His blood, and that 
if it is what we are saying that it is, this is just one more in a Lord's Supper until we all partake of it together for the last time and then we enter into eternity and partake of it together with all of the saints and with Christ Himself. It's an encouragement to our faith. We fellowship as we worship together. The confession references Hebrews 10, and we can look at that, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, I think we know this passage well. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is, I don't know that anybody doubts that this text is, is referring to the gathered worship of the church. And this text is often, often abused. Over the last couple of years, this text has been used by, I believe, many good-hearted people to basically, essentially say, there's no reason under God's heaven that anybody should ever miss church. And, and that's not what this text is, is actually talking about. This, this text is a, a warning passage, like we have several in the book of Hebrews, a warning of apostasy. The idea here is that of, of, of abandoning the faith, leaving the assembly altogether. But, but what do we do? Our, our tendency is two extremes, right? So we, we hear it misused and we say, well, that's not what that text means. Well, and then we swing all the way to the other extreme to where we begin to think something like this. Well, neglecting here refers to full apostasy from the faith. Therefore, as long as I haven't actually committed full apostasy from the faith, as long I, as I personally aim at being with some saints somewhere, then I'm really in line with this verse. I'm safe. I've not apostatized as if this verse was only addressing the, the fullness of apostasy. But remember, as this is a warning passage, it is a warning of apostasy, but it warns against the danger while also prescribing the remedy at the same time. There's a negative and a positive. The negative is the warning of apostasy. Do not neglect to meet together. And some people say, well, I'm satisfying that because I haven't neglected the meeting. But there's also the positive side of this. Stir up one another to love and good works. Encourage one another and all the more. You can attend a Christian worship service every Sunday of your life and still be in direct disobedience to this text. You can attend a Christian worship service every Sunday and be perhaps the most hardened of apostates because you think you're fine. I'm here, aren't I? How is that? It's because you never attend to the positives. You never sought to stir up your brothers and sisters. You never encouraged anybody else. You never tried to increase in encouraging anybody else. Yeah, you are here, but there's more to the verse than just don't stop coming to church. There's the positive side of that. In other words, even though you might have been at church, you've never actually displayed a Christian virtue in coming to the assembly. And this struck me this week that Christ said to the Jews, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. If you're not producing the fruits of the kingdom, the kingdom hasn't been given to you. 
This is how we examine ourselves. The, the fruit is not, well, I, I'm, I still go to church. That's not the fruit. As we, we all know, lost people go to church every Lord's Day to pacify their conscience. The Christian virtue in this, in this warning is to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another, and all the more increasingly so. This is important to us. So we fellowship in worship. The second way that we share fellowship is in mutual edification. Saints by profession are bound to maintain in holy fellowship and communion. Now we move to the second portion. In performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. Now we discussed this last week. We've discussed it many times recently. We are going to continue to discuss this as we move into the series on spiritual gifts. We use our respective gifts for one another to build each other up. When you hear the phrase mutual edification, mutual means both parties are doing it. It's back and forth. And edification means building up. An edifice, that's another word for a building. To edify is to build something into a building, a structure. So mutual edification means we're all working together mutually to build one another up. We talked about this this morning. If we were to ask, what is the aim of being built up? Well, I think it's to be strengthened in the faith. To be, to be stronger, all of us, in our faith. Turn to Hebrews 3, and we see another one of these passages, one of these warning passages. The more that I read Hebrews, the more I believe it is a, it is a letter that is very contextualized to the gathering of the local church and the things that happen in the assembly. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice again, there's the negative and the positive. There's the warning against apostasy, but there's also the remedy. Here's what you do to keep from that. We're commanded to exhort one another. And this is how we, we give ourselves to each other. You never know when a text or a phone call or a conversation might be the thing in providence that the Lord has chosen from eternity to use to save a particular brother or sister from apostasy. You don't know that when that might happen. And so we, we do it. We encourage one another and exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Now this does not mean, you know... Send a text to every church member, you know, every single day of the week. The idea is, as an assembly, everybody should be in the habit of exhorting and encouraging one another every day. Look, look for somebody to encourage. When was the last time that you encouraged one of the saints in this room? Now, I, I have learned personally that for men, this is a really hard thing to do. This is, it is really a giving of yourself because, and I find myself this way, I won't say we, it's me, that a lot of times when I want to say a word of encouragement, I feel like I have to hang my head down and sort of, you know, like I'm embarrassed or ashamed to say something encouraging to a brother because it's, you're sort of wearing your heart on your sleeve. But, but I've learned in being in the presence of men who do this, who are encouraging and coming away from them and saying, whatever I have to do to be like one of those men, I'm going to do it. Because when I leave their presence, I'm encouraged. I'm built up. I want to be that type of person. But really all of the saints should be seeking to exhort one another and encourage one another and spur one another on. 
What do we learn in these warning texts like this? We learn that the activity of the saints in communion and fellowship is precisely how the Lord of the church protects His people from apostasy. He uses the saints to keep the saints. Just like your rib cage protects your heart from, from what could potentially be a mortal blow. Can you imagine what would happen if you didn't have ribs and your, your vital organs were just sort of right in there? Your body parts protect your body parts. In the same way, the church, the, the members of the body are used to protect and preserve the other members. So we fellowship in mutual edification. The third way that we share fellowship is in our temporal concerns. Saints by profession are bound to maintain in holy fellowship and communion. And here's the third portion. In relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. As Christians, we are not above, outside of, separated from, temporal, physical needs. We don't come to the Scriptures and to Christianity and say, well, we'll deal with one another on a spiritual level and we'll interact on a spiritual level, but physical things, well, that's not really what we're about. That's Gnosticism. We don't believe that. We don't separate the inner man from the outer man in some way. When we know the needs of others, we should seek to help them with those needs. The confession points us to Acts 11, 29, and 30, which says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And you see that phrase in the confession. It says, according to their several abilities and necessities. The Scripture says, according to his ability. So this doesn't imply that every person is obligated to help in every situation in every way possible. As you are able, as needs arise, we ought to be the type of people who seek to help even in temporal things, matters of of physical life. These are the ways that we give of ourselves to one another. There ought to be a burden in the heart of us all that each of the others is spiritually and physically well and healthy and growing in grace. That ought to be typical of a pastor's heart But I hope that it would be true of all of us, that we all go home and we're thinking throughout the week and and are concerned and it is a a matter of our our prayers, the health, the spiritual well-being of the other members, that we don't just put off those people until I see them again the next week. But we should all, as it were, live in each other's minds all the time and especially in our prayers. So there are three ways of fellowship. Worship, mutual edification, and then temporal concerns. Next main heading are the three areas that Christians have fellowship. Three areas of life or three relations in which this kind of fellowship ought to be happening. The confession reads, which communion, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, Yet, as God offereth opportunity, it is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice the language. It says, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand. In other words, we put this in our terminology. 
the base assumption, the most basic and obvious place where this communion should be taking place first and foremost would be in those places where providence has fixed you in your home and in your church. Those areas that are right before you, your family and your church. First communion is especially to be exercised in families. So we take all of those three ways that we exercise fellowship in worship, mutual edification, and temporal concerns, and then we bring that into the family. This applies in our households, so we should be worshiping as families. Christian families should be worshiping together. Where there is a Christian father, he ought to be opening up the Scriptures and reading and teaching his household daily. Christian praises, songs should be heard in Christian homes. Prayers should be being offered up all the time, but especially at set times for worship in the home. Every Christian home should be a little church or a little house of worship to Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's, that's a command. It's a responsibility. Now, we all know this, especially fathers and husbands, that this takes time, it takes practice, it takes experience to develop this well into something that we really feel comfortable doing. And maybe even after all that, you still don't feel super comfortable doing this. But think about, maybe this is an encouragement if family worship is not, not normal or routine. Or maybe you just feel awkward doing it. Think about what it must look like to our Heavenly Father when He looks down all around the world at all times in every generation and He sees little households like little cities set on little hills, little, little flickering lights where His worship is happening all over the world. Even if we don't feel like we're very good at it. These people in this household, while all of the world is doing what all of the world is doing, these, these people have gathered together. How many homes do you think on your street or in your neighborhood around supper time or whenever you might do it, how many households do you think there are where you could go in at some point in the day and find that family sitting down, walking through the Word of God and a father teaching and instructing his children and then leading them in songs and then praying together? How rare do you think that is really in, in the world? And yet our Heavenly Father can look and He sees all of it, wherever it is. We don't really know. He sees it. And how much should this stir our hearts to know that God also sees areas of great blackness and darkness in the world where there are very few, if any, families worshiping God in His world, on His planet that He made, His people, with breath in their lungs that He gave them. And yet there are huge places where nobody is worshiping Him. We ought to be taking time in our family worship to pray for the spread of the gospel. We worship as families. Then there's mutual edification as a family. Christian family members should be seeking to strengthen and encourage one another's faith and edify one another at home. If there are professors of faith in your home, then encourage them. Parents, if your children profess to be Christians, encourage them in that. 
Don't write it off. Don't doubt it. Encourage them. Don't ignore them. Don't baby them. Well, yeah, you say that, but you're not really ready for... No, encourage them. Spur them on. Remind them. I do this often with my children. I remind them all the time, if you're going to be a Christian, then these kinds of things are going to characterize your life. The good things, the blessings, but also the hardships that you're going to have to endure. You had better be ready because it's not going to be easy. I tell them that all the time. Encourage them. Give them books and assignments that will help them grow. Treat them like what they profess. If they profess to be Christians, then shove stuff in their faces. It will either give them a, 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 an incredible head start in growing in the faith, or they might learn that their profession is in vain. It's in their mouth, but not in their heart. And same with husbands and wives. Encourage one another in the faith. We, we, we can't settle into this mindset that that the husband and wife relationship can never, can never be a, a Christian, a mutual Christian brother and sister relationship. Or, or parents and children have to only relate to each other's parents and children. We can't treat one another like, like brothers and sisters. But if you've got somebody professing the faith, treat them like a Christian. Yes, be a husband if you're a husband. Be a wife if you're a wife. Be a parent if you're a parent. But if there's professors in your home, then use that opportunity to stir them and encourage them. Then we meet the temporal needs of our families. I think this would be most obvious. Physical needs should be met in every Christian home according to the specific role and function of each member. Fathers are to be leading households. Parents are to be seeking ways to provide for their children. But a lot of times what we don't think about this, children, think about this. As you grow up, you need to be looking for ways to pitch in and help at your home to relieve duties from your parents so that they can do other things, that works to keep the household providing for itself so that we're not raising just litters of leeches, but we're raising workers who can benefit the home and advance the household. You're, you're actually helping in the provision of the needs of the family when you pitch in around the house. So we need to do these things as families. Then there's communion as a church, which we've talked about. Our own local church, we should worship as a church. We're aiming at mutual edification and the use of our gifts in the church. And we should seek to meet the temporal needs of people in this church as we are able. At the recent conference we were at, Kevin Swanson made a statement to the effect that we should bring health care back into the church. And that struck me. Because I, immediately I began to think like, you know, who, who, who in the church would I let do surgery on me? Like, I'm thinking, let's start a hospital, you know. I, I would rather somebody in this room cut me open than go to a hospital, to be honest. But, and we know that there are Christian health care things and Christian bill-sharing things where, we, where Christians come together and help one another. Allison said she got a, a, a check this week from one of those ministries from Scott Aniel, who was a speaker at the conference. So this is Christians helping other Christians in needs and, and health care type things. But it doesn't have to just be those, those big tent things. We also ought to be helping one another in basic health concerns. Many of the ladies in this church have aspirations and, and honestly true vast knowledge in, in things like 
what's healthy to eat, what kind of medicines to use, what, what to do here and there. Because you start having children, you start thinking, what do I want to put in their mouth? What do I want to put on their cuts? What do I want to put in their... T-? You know, you're thinking about all this stuff. That stuff, that's not just separate from Christianity. As Christians, we believe that we ought to take care of our bodies. That's, that, that's Christianity. That's basic. We ought to be doing those things. That's an encouraging thing that you grow and you study and you learn those things and bring that in so that we can all benefit from it. It's a great help to meet the temporal needs in the church and health needs. We could go into things like that we do very often. So and so, so if, if I need a plumber, I know the first plumber I'm going to call. If I need an electrician, I know the first electrician I'm going to call. If I need a carpenter, I, need, I know the first carpenter I'm going to call. If I need just general maintenance uh, uh, on my automobile, I know the first person I'm going to call. They're all sitting in this room. If I need shingles or a roof on my house, I know the first person I'm going to call. They're all sitting in this room. I don't know what I can provide. I hope that you'd call me and let me watch you do something. <laughs> I tell everybody I'm a great gopher. Just tell me where to hold the tape and I'll do whatever. But we do that. We, we see that as... That, that's not... What, what the point is, that's Christian. That's Christian living. Our, our nation was built with people with that attitude. It wasn't just you know, the, the American spirit. No, that was Christian of people to think that way. I help my neighbors. I look out for people. Christians build hospitals. Christians start schools. That's what we do. So it comes into the church, but then there's also communion with the saints in all places. The confession says, Yet as God offereth opportunity, that would be in providence, This communion is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So we worship with the saints in all places. As you have opportunity within reason, I don't think this means get on a plane and fly across the country to to this or that, but as you have opportunity within reason, worship with the saints in other places. It'll be an encouragement to them, especially churches like ours, a, a, a tiny church, to see a huge family like we have come in. That's an encouragement. And they will be an encouragement to you. Then there's mutual edification to the saints in all places. As we interact with other believers in in our routine life, we we run into a Christian somewhere, somebody that we know at the store or in the workplace. We ought to see that as an opportunity orchestrated by the risen Lord to bring two members of His body together for a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of strengthening in the faith. And then we also meet the temporal needs of saints in all places. Again, as providence allows, as occasions arise, as you're able to, see to it that the temporal needs of the saints are met. We ought to look out for one another in this way. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, which is referenced in our confession, a text, one of those that we've read, reread, we'll continue to read and reread. And I think meditation on this passage might be one of the most helpful things you could do as it regards how we interact in the church. First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Those of you who have gifts and you think, Well, I'm not this and I'm not that and I can't do this and I can't do that, that doesn't make you any less a part of the body of Christ. 
Verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? In other words, you look at the giftings of, of certain people, and you might think, well, I can't do what they do. You should say, praise God, because the last thing we need is a room full of people doing what that one person can do, and, and nothing else. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Notice God's operation here. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Every, every, every part needs every other part. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God, there's God's operation, notice verse 25, that, here's His goal, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see, God's purpose, God arranged the members. God has so composed the body that there would be unity. You can't have unity where you have two of the same thing. Unity implies one thing and another thing that's not that thing coming together and being unified. And we do this as God gives opportunity to all of the saints. We all look for areas to serve the body of Christ. So three Ways that we have fellowship, three areas or relations in which we have fellowship, and then thirdly, an important qualification for Christian fellowship. There have been many, and there are some now. We were talking this afternoon about the 12 tribes and groups like that. and They take the things that we've just covered, which are clearly in the Word of God, and then they draw from them or they, they deduce a sort of Christian communism that no one thing belongs to any one person, because we're one in Christ, all of our things belongs to all of us. Christ did say to one person, sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me. The saints in the book of Acts sold houses and lands and gave the money to the apostles. And so they conclude that if we have anything, it doesn't really belong to us. Everything is God's and everything belonging to God's people belongs to all of God's people. Therefore, no man can lay any legitimate claim to anything that's his, to any of his own things. Today, a lot of people would champion the cause of political socialism. And there are people who say this. Jesus was a socialist. You know, he, didn't, he didn't own anything of His own that we can tell. He advocated for helping the poor because that's what they think socialism is, being nice to, to the poor, helping the poor. These are the same people who would say Jesus was an illegal immigrant or nations shouldn't have border walls because Jesus allowed everybody to come to Him. You know, the... the a confusion of, of so many categories, it's incredible. We don't believe this to be the teaching of the Bible. Our confession puts it this way, Nevertheless, their communion, one with another as saints, doth not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. In other words, this communion does not mean that my stuff isn't mine, 
and your stuff isn't yours. Now, I've told everybody that's here, the keys, this is going to be recorded, the keys of my, in my vehicles are always in my vehicles. If anybody ever needs to use any of my vehicles, the keys are in it. But it's still mine. That doesn't mean it's yours. It's still mine. We can be kind to one another and also respect the boundaries of personal, private property. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This is where this comes from. And I've said before, you know, if somebody's going to steal my car, I'd rather not bust out my window, you know. Just take it, park it somewhere. (laughs) Acts chapter 4, the relevant text is verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The point here is that they weren't clutching their things and saying, you get your own stuff, this is mine. But they were, they were free. They, were, they held their things loosely and were willing to share because there were many amongst them that have needs. But if that's not sufficient, that leads straight into, we have the example of people, uh, specifically Joseph, but that leads straight into Acts chapter 5, which is referenced in the Confession, The well-known story of Ananias and Sapphira, verse 4, Peter says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. See, there was no requirement. All right, everybody sell all your stuff. No, he says, when it was yours, it was yours. Nobody said you had to sell it. And then even after you sold it. Nobody said you had to give any of the money to the church. You want to give a little bit? Give a little bit. You want to give it all? Give it all. But that's on you. It's your money. The sin of Ananias and Zephyrah wasn't that they kept a little bit of money. It was that they lied to the Holy Spirit of God by lying to the church, to the apostles. Many did sell houses and land for the sake of those in need, but it doesn't say that everyone sold everything that they had so that nobody owned anything. And I tend to think that the allusion here is to something much bigger than just helping one another. More than likely, these Jewish saints had houses and lands that had belonged to them and their ancestors since the lots were cast for the lands under Joshua. These people are now selling these things because they've been brought out of the type and into the anti-type. They're seeking now the benefit of the new Jerusalem, the church, the people of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here's the the, the admonition or the the command. Get a job, work, make make your money. He doesn't say, and bring your paycheck to the elders. Submit submit your paycheck. No, he says, you're going to work. Make your money so that you will have something to share with anyone who has a need. Not give it away, you have yours. Paul teaches here what ought to be the mindset of Christian workers. I mentioned this morning about bringing the concept of labor and finances and even budgeting to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? I think we learn here that we we should not budget ourselves into a corner and try to live according to, to a what's called a subsistent standard of living as if it's holy to, to have nothing. 
But rather, I would say, work hard, prove yourself worthy and faithful, trustworthy, prove yourself valuable. If the Lord gives increase and advance in your work, then take that as a blessing. And when you begin to budget, you don't start with, well, here's what we need. Start with, here's what our household uses. And then here's what we would like to have extra for anyone in need or to, to share with the saints. That, that should be a part of Christian budgeting. How can I be flexible enough to be able to share if there's a need? Again, that doesn't mean you have to have $10,000 in a savings account to, to give to somebody when there's a need. But you should be at least free if somebody shows up and says, Hey, you know, we're here at supper time. You could say... Come on in. Let's eat. We, we have extra. We have a little bit of food left. Be ready to share. That should be our attitude. In conclusion, we believe in Christian communion, not communism. We do not believe in political or ecclesiastical coercion in this matter. We rely solely upon the provision and the providence of God. <laughs> and when we rely on the provision and providence of God, then our self-giving will flow from genuine Christian love and a Holy Spirit-conceived initiative. You're free to be in fellowship. You're free to help others. There's no coercion. That way when it happens, you can say, nobody forced me to this. Nobody held a gun to my head. Nobody said, here are the rules of church membership. Put this into the, the fund. No. Just be ready, prepared to help. Let's pray.